high from Aspen. Oh, yeah, it's Promoter 101. And I'm telling you that it's Promoter 101. And I love it. It's Promoter 101 and I love him Alright, live with Stani At the limelight Just me and a few friends Yeah Getting it on With Promoter 101 this is Alex Hodges with Needlelander Concerts, and I'm here with Promoter 101. Welcome back, boys and girls. All new episode of Promoter 101 this week, episode 119. Joined as always by the man himself, Mr. Dan Steinberg. Welcome to the podcast. Tis true. This week we've got a great show. We're sitting down with CEO of Tour Design, Deborah Fergie Ferguson, the Fergie one herself. That's right. And after that, we're going to have a catch up. The general manager of the UC Theater, Matt Smitty Smith, conference regular, sitting down to rap with us about all things Bay Area. And a fresh war story from City Winery's Shlomo Lippitz. Plus, we've got the news of the week for you. Hey, it's Mark David. Steve Strange. Toby Layton Pipe. Stuart Galbraith. Simeon Galperin. I'm Ralph James. Jed Cohen. Julia Frank. Jeff Goodman. Jamie Adler. And Frank Wing. Doug Edley. David Klein. Stephen Riff. Tom Chauncey. And, and we're, we're on, on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Next week, we're changing the show up a little bit. That is right. We've got a big change coming for Promoter 101. We're going to be posting two shows a week starting next Monday and next Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. Pacific. The shows are going to be condensed version of this podcast, but we're going to bring them to you twice as many. That's right. It's going to be bite-sized portions, but it should fill up your normal commute just a little bit easier. So try and something new. Let us know what you think about it. Give it a couple of weeks. Let it sink in so you can really just get the vibe of it. Dan, the rumors are true. Podcast is just about everywhere now. Tell them where they can find it. You know, we're pretty much where you're listening to us right now, as well as Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube. <sighs> And Google Music. Sorry. Sorry. Out of breath. Too many places. Next week, we will finally be hitting Philly, PA. The countdown is on. That's right. You can catch us on campus on Wednesday, January 30th at the University of the Arts at Kaplan Recital Hall. We're going to have a very special guest in Live Nation's Jeff Gordon sitting down to record a live version of this show. First time we've done here in a while, Dan. You looking forward to Philly? I am looking forward to Philly. John Hampton is going to be in the house. Jesse Lundy is going to be in the house. All sorts of good hangs. It seems like it's going to be a good time in Philly. And Jeff Gordon, man, the guy's a fucking icon. He is. Looking forward to it very much. You know, Dan, the fans should know a little bit about how they can get into this show. What's the details? When are we starting? How do they find us next week? All right. Well, if we're going to be all professional about it, tickets are free. The whole thing's sponsored by the university. Somebody's parents paid for an overpriced college education, and that money is getting funneled into bringing us to fucking Philadelphia. So tickets are free. It's from our friends at the university. All you have to do is get there at 630 when the doors open for the show that starts at 7 o'clock and then plan on hanging out with us after. I'm guessing John Hampton's going to know where we're drinking, so we're just going to follow that guy to the bar somewhere, but it's going to be on. Philly, we are coming for you January 30th. Get ready, because to be the man, you got to beat the man, and Jeff Gordon is certainly the man, and we can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Woo!
little Ric Flair for you. I love the hype. And if you're doing the social media thing, you're more than welcome to follow us wherever you do it at. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're pretty snarky. We're pretty fun to follow along. So catch us. I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan's at the Jew. This show is at Promoters 101. That's Promoters plural, Dan. You can always email us. Share your thoughts with us, your insight, your personal inner being. You know, and we can maybe talk tantrum massage and see where it goes. I don't, I don't know. Find your spirit child. It'll be great. It'll be great. Anyway, Steiny at Promoter101.net. That gets to both of us. And you can follow us on Instagram and all of the fun things. You never know who we're going to be hanging out with and what we're going to be doing. So you can always do that. So there you go. So Dan, you had a little uh, trip down to Disneyland with Reese and Lodi this weekend. I saw you ran into some very interesting person that you decided to post a photo with who wasn't Harvey Cohen. It looks like the guy from Community who argues all the time with Lucy Liu. Was that Clark Griswold? I, I can't remember. Who was this? If you're going to go to Wally World, who better to hang out with than Clark W. Griswold himself? Got a little FaceTime in with Chevy Chase this week. And of course, Harvey Cohen. Always a great hang when you're in L.A. You just never know who you're going to bump into. Let me ask you this. Is Donald Duck as grumpy in person as he appears in the cartoons, Dan? What's he really like? He's an Oregon Ducks fan, of course. And if you followed me on social media this week, you could see him giving the big O to all the Duck fans with Reese and Elodie and me. Go Ducks! It's Adam Voith from Billions, and I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of our past podcasts, well, that's fucking on you. That's your own problem. Get the fuck with it. But hey, we've got a reissue for you. Episode 73 is up right now on Promoter101.net. You can check out that magical moment that we shared with some of the greatest people in the world. Tell them about it, Luke. Episode 73 was a doozy. We had Vector Management, Ross Schilling. He sat down to talk about Low Cash, Aaron Lewis. Possible stain reunion in the mix there was rumored in that interview. And uh, the farewell tour of Leonard Skinner. Wrap it up now. Worth listening to. Plus, we had Wolf Trap's Sarah Beasley talking about balancing the line between the arts, being cool, and where they become one. And we rounded out that podcast with a war story from Live Nation's Andy Levitt. It's a great war story. It has to do with Philly cheese sandwiches, Andy Levitt, and Bill Cosby. One to catch. If you're waiting in line for the ATM or TSA and you're listening to us right now on P101, it's a good time to drop us a review or to subscribe or really call your mother. Call your mother. We're not sure what you should say in that review. Maybe tell us what you think of our brand new Promoter 101 logo, which we unveiled this week. Check it out on social media. What did you think of the logo, Luke? You know, big fan of it, Dan. I think it looks like the Pringles guy in his O-face. His O-face? You know, oh, oh, oh. Like, oh, that show's going on sale. That's really exciting. Uh, no, it's an office-based reference, Dan. O-Face. Look it up. I got the reference, Luke. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ben Chalice, and I'm on Promoto 101. News of the week. Please welcome the Honorable W. Luke Pierce with some news you need to know. Time for news of the week. Fire! See what I did there? Last week, two separate documentaries about the debacle in the Bahamas dropped. That's right. Fire Festival documentaries galore. Fire Fraud, a Hulu documentary featuring our good buddy Dave Brooks, dropped on Tuesday afternoon. And it was an earnest account of the events that unfolded leading up to the Billy McFarlane-led disaster fest in the Bahamas. And later in the week last week, on Friday, Netflix distributed their own Fuck Jerry-produced documentary. Fuck Jerry is the media company that helped McFarlane, quote-unquote, stop the internet and drive the social media craze that brought thousands to the island of Exuma where they were so graciously duped by Billy and his team. What'd you think about it? Let us know. We want to hear what you think about some comments on social media this week. 
Desert days ahead for the champ, Mike Tyson. Former heavyweight champ Mike Tyson now owns a 412-acre entertainment and cannabis facility, people. The Coachella Valley resident now is hosting his first event on that property next month, and he's calling it the Kind Festival. It'll be hosted on February 23rd. The festival will have music, mazes, obstacle courses, and a quote-unquote chill zone with 100 specialty beanbags. While no weed will be available for sale, the organizers say that it will celebrate California's progressive stance on cannabis. I can't imagine what'll go wrong. I know this is a podcast about music, but we should talk for a second about the Oscars and film. The 91st Academy Award nominations were announced this week, and poised in contention are some heavy-hitting artists up for best song. Lady Gaga, Kendrick Lamar, SZA, and 10-time Academy Award nominee Diane Warren all up for best song. Gaga co-wrote Shallow from the movie A Star is Born and is also nominated for leading actress. Warren, who's yet to find a win, might finally take her first statue home with her song I'll Fight from the Oscar-nominated documentary about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg called RBG. That'll do it for News of the Week. Hey, it's Elliot Lesko, promoter from Golden Voice in Los Angeles on Promoter 101. There is absolutely no fucking way, Dan, that we'd forget to announce the Promoter 101 badass of the week. Who is it this week? That's right. We'll never forget because it's next in the script loop. It's right here in front of me. There's no way that we could forget it unless we scrolled past it and just went on to the next thing. You know what? Since you have scrolled down, you actually know who the badass of the week. So this week, why don't you do the honors? Wow. Big honor here. This week's badass of the week goes out to SMGC. Senior Vice President of Entertainment, Mr. Jim McHugh, one of the best guys in the biz, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congrats, Jim. No one deserves it more. Well done, motherfucker. Call your mother. He should call his mother, tell him about the honor. That'd be the right thing to do, right? Call your mother. Bob Rupp here on Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week, we're joined by the CEO of Tour Design, Miss Deborah Fergie Ferguson. I'm joined by the queen of assets. Fergie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Danny Steiny. Deborah Ferguson, for people that don't get so formal with things, but everybody in the business knows you as Fergie. They do. You have been in the center of assets and making art the way the acts want it to since touring has been brought to a point where acts were using everything besides sending out glossy pictures and a logo. When they took away the power and said, you guys can just create something, it suddenly came back to, okay, no, no, you guys can't be trusted with this. Tour design comes into the picture in that world. How did tour design come about, actually? When I first started at Sunshine Promotions, assistant for Dave and Steve. Dave Lucas. Dave Lucas, Steve Sebesma, my Indiana boys. I was their assistant, and tour design had been probably six months in the making then, and they did Oak Ridge Boys. That was their first band, because Oak Ridge Boys, they came to a point where people were using all these photos of different variations of the band. and the We bands, want the right picture of the beard. Pretty much so. Yeah, the length of the beard had to be consistent. So that was our first tour. It was crazy. And we just did the artwork, and then they wanted posters made. And back in the day, we did screen posters. And we ship about 300 posters customized for each market even. When you bought the date, did the promoters buy that from you or did the act pay for it and the promoters just got it? The promoters it? paid. That was part of their package. Radio spots, the artwork, and 300 posters. 
So is that a hard thing at the get-go, getting promoters to be willing to pay for something that the radio station will give you a spot for free when you're buying it? They'll produce an announcement. It won't be as good. Was that a fight at the get-go? I worked directly with the agent managers, and they wanted it to be done. If you wanted to do the Oaks, you had to do this. And that fight was already fought by the time you got the call. Pretty much so. Okay, so there was no real pushback at that level where you were doing the Oak Group Voyage. No, because every promoter wanted it. And again, back in the day, Sunshine Promotions, Cellar Door Concerts, Jam contemporary productions. They all wanted it and they wanted it to be consistent as well. So it was a win-win. And there had already been some of this in the space, right? Bill Young had already been doing some Correct. of this prior to that. So people are used to the concept of you're dealing with an act on this level. You're having to use our assets the way we want them to where you don't get the show. Correct. We were the new kids in town at the time. Then the roll-up happens with SFX and you guys being part of David Lucas's company came along with that, right? Delsner Slater was the first to be bought out, so to speak. Sunshine Promotions was the second. Oh, really? Yep. And I just remember Dave and Steve gathering us all in the conference room. We all went in there because we were kind of, you know, scared at the time. Like, nothing's going to change. Don't worry. Nothing's going to change. And you're like, eh. So then SFX started and the color red was our world and it got pretty intense. But I've always just loved my tour design. Lots of transformations, but you are owned by the biggest concert producer in the world. And when they're putting together tours, that has to be a little bit of an advantage. It is. And, you know, for me, I work with, again, every artist has their trusted person, I guess. Sometimes it comes down from the manager. Sometimes they give me a direct call. Sometimes it's the agent who's really involved, gives me a direct call or sends me an email, say, here's the photo, here's the vibe, do it. Sometimes I don't know if it's a Live Nation tour. It's not like I'm in the niche of just being right there. I still pretty much just gather some information from the agents and managers that I deal with. And if it's a Live Nation tour, great. Sometimes we do, you know, AEG tours. What's the turnaround time from when an act first calls and says, we're going to do a tour to when we're going on sale and we need to have assets and promoters' hands probably a week before they're going up, right? Well, if I had a yo-yo here, man, I'd just string that thing and up and down and all around. Okay, so ideally, what would you like to see? We would love like a four-day turnaround. So if you get the call, you can be ready to like get it out to promoters four days later? Yep. That's really fucking quick. It is quick. I like a lot more notice. And sometimes we do have more lead time, but more rather than not, even though I can call and say, hey, you know, I know this is coming down and they're waiting for a tour name or an approved photo from the artist or a concept that they're wanting. So a lot of it comes down to the wire. And, you know, we've been there on a Thursday night until wee hours of the morning for a Monday announced, but things have to ship Friday. So it's a scramble, but it's just the love of the business, I guess, and the relationships I have. I'll move heaven and earth for my clients. In modern day, there are multiple formats that you have to produce the assets in. Correct. Clearly TV, radio, print is still an option for a lot of the bigger, older artists, especially the Heritage Jacks. Well, key art is one of those things that people say, you know, maybe print is dead and they don't buy a newspaper. You still have to have the approved key art because then that goes into the digital ads and you reformat it, you resize it, but they have to approve the layout, the size of the logos, if there's a sponsorship logo in it or added or whatnot. Same with TV, broadcast TV. Some artists use it, some don't, but you still have to have the spot of a 30 second or 15 second TV to turn into an online digital piece. 
which we just reformat into an online piece with persistent messages. And so you have to start with the basics before you can proceed to do all the digital assets. And now the Twitter and the Facebook and Instagram and what have you, all the different platforms, you have to be formatted just to, reformat to go right it. into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because and each one of them have their own specs. So making sure that that all looks right when you hand over. That's these. the easy part, though. You know, it's, it's getting it approved. You know, sometimes they want to see it in all the different formats, but basically they're like, well, if it's the same content as the 30 or 15, I trust you because it's a lot. When a new format or genre of media comes out of nowhere, and they do, they drop out of nowhere suddenly, you have to be ready to design something and tool into it out of nowhere. Correct. I mean, there wasn't internet, and then there was, and then you had to design e-cards and what have you. Whole new ball game. If there is a new form of media, which I'm sure there will be. Nope. Yeah, I'm sure there was a point 30 years ago where everybody was sure we had them all covered, but I think we were all at the point where we realized that technology will bring us new ways to put things out of the cool text or what have you. Well, like another Indiana boy said, Mr. John Mellencamp, Cougar Mellencamp. The Coug. If you're not part of the future, then get out of the way. I like that. It's just how it is. And you just have to adapt. And we've done that. And our main issue is touring. But we do a lot of other, you know, types of any creative tool that helps sell a ticket is kind of my spiel now. Because it's not, you know, just the music industry. We do some theatrical things. We do some sports things. And a lot of people come to us to do the creative because between the plethora of voice talents we have, you know, we do the creative that they see on our site for tourdesign.com. And they're like, man. You can do anything. It's like, yeah, we can and we do. So we diversify. It's an amazing amount of volume that you guys push through the office. I love seeing Bill Kittle at the conferences because he's in the panels, but he's never he never looks up because he's still working the entire time because he can't not be working because you guys are always on deadline for 10 or 15 sewers, especially when you're coming into summer. Did he give you like 50 bucks to say that? Kittle is always working. <laughs> I know. He is. He is. And he was my assistant for many years. And I feel like I've created a little bit of a monster, but he loves what he does. Now, do I wish he was on his laptop in a conference in the lobby? Not so much, but he gets the job done. And that's why I'm just so proud of the company as a whole. My team is just spectacular. Again, and feeling like I don't want to sound cheesy, but a family kind of vibe. We have each other's back and we know that we each work really hard, but it depends on all that person in the chain of what they do. I can't produce a spot. I can't go into an editing bay and edit a TV spot. But when I get all the information and they know that it's a big tour and it's I'm passionate about it. They kind of do it for me and to get a paycheck. I mean, you know, who am I kidding? But it's just we really I try and make it a each day somewhat of a good experience within the stress levels that we have and the pressures. But we're together 10 to 12 hours a day. So you, you might as well try and just work together in a good kind of fashion. But they all just jump to it. So I'm just proud of my team of their work ethic and how they deal with people and not just an email, but do a phone call and just really dig in and have a relationship with our clients. You know, certain things are easy because if it's digital, it's, it's probably a layered format or something that goes out and they can localize it. But when it's TV or radio, you guys have to do the localization and finish those spots and add the local information. Correct. So when you've got a global on sale for a real, real massive tour and you're having to do localized spots for... I know it could be a hundred shows, right? Absolutely. The amount of turnaround time and, and making sure you guys hit deadlines has got to just be crazy push to the finish line. And that's why we just stay until it gets done. And, you know, when there are multiple on sales of multiple different tours, it gets pretty intense. 
me more than one painting at a time goes on sale on Friday? <laughs> or Monday at 10 a.m. It, it happens, man. Who chose 10 a.m.? What the <laughs> fuck? Where did that come oh, from? I don't know. The business that you have within itself is incredible. And we could talk about that forever. But how did you find yourself in the midst of rock and roll? How did you come to this? Little Beatles girl. 45s, all the Beatles. Xenia, Ohio. Love music. Love people. 84. Ended up getting married in Indianapolis. And that's when I started Sunshine Promotions. The marriage didn't last, but I stayed there because I love Sunshine Promotions. And then after a year, they said, you know, this division we have for tour design, we do Oak Ridge Boys. And at the time, um, John Vallant was the media buyer for Sunshine. And Steve Girardi was the tour design. So there were two guys who did tour design within Sunshine Promotions. It was our little like hustle gig, so to speak. So Sunshine Promotions had a little niche called tour design. They flew people in from New York and LA to help John then with tour design because at the time Dave and Steve were building Deer Creek Amphitheater. So Steve Girardi wanted to do production there. He didn't want to do tour design anymore. Dave and Steve flew like 20 people in from New York and LA and I'm in the corner being their assistant and I'm like, I know I just started and I'm in my early 20s or whatnot, but it's like, I think I can do this because I love music and I love people. And of course, I love to fucking talk. I make that clear. And they're like, hmm, you're just, you just started the business. We're just not sure, you know, you would have what it takes. Well, after they flew all these people in, they wanted a big chunk of money. They're like, hey, Fergie, now let's talk about this. And so I started it like a peanut thing, but I'm like, I'm your girl. I'm going to prove I can do this. And within two year time, the business tripled because I started flying to New York and LA and Nashville and just knocking on the doors and, you know, pre-cell phone. I just had had the passion for it and I loved it. And I was thrilled to have my foot in the music industry because I had just always been a music loving kind of girl. So to go from the beginning of this thing to working with some of the biggest acts in the world. Yeah. Like that's a nice ride to get to like see that whole thing build and develop. Well, Sir Paul McCartney, man, I was Debbie Lynn McCartney. My principals would say, hey, Virginia, my mom, she's at it again. And my mom's like, ah, no. I would start signing my papers, Debbie Lynn McCartney. <laughs> like once every six months, because I'm like, man, if he met me, he would fall in love with me and marry me. <laughs> I'm sorry, Linda, but that's just how it would be. So from that time on, but now working with Barry Marshall and Ben and their team on, on Paul McCartney's tour. When they call and I get an email, my heart just explodes. I got to keep my cool, but it's like, this is pretty wonderful. You have an amazing viewpoint of the industry. You have been in it long enough to know when you got to ramp up for summer and when it's going to get crazy, you know, when things are going to cool down for the holidays, you know, things are going to get busy for shows going on sale around Thanksgiving for the Christmas season, for tickets make great gifts. Nothing should surprise you in that world. What are the things that catch you off guard these days? Hmm. Yeah, the timing situation, it doesn't surprise me because we, we used to have somewhat of a lull. We really don't. There is no concert season anymore, just all straight mm -mm. through. Well, you know, in the amphitheaters, and again, that starts sometimes the preps. We're doing some stuff for the amphitheaters now. You know, it's not just that we start in March or April on things. Some of the early shows are up. Eric Church has been up for a while, I think. That. And, you know, if they do the country mega ticket, those kind of things. But you have to just be patient because sometimes if they don't know all the artists involved or something, it's just a part of the business. And you just have to kind of accept it and know that you just have to roll with them punches on that. But that's a good question on what surprises me. I'm not saying I've seen it all and heard it all and done it all, but I shake my head on a daily basis, but it doesn't really surprise me. 
So when you get into some of these acts playing festivals or artists playing stadiums and the budgets are much bigger and the ability to do formatting outside the box in much more creative ways, does that bring assets into a different world where it's like you have to create things that you've never created before because they've got this huge budget and they're trying to do creative things, but it has to still be in the band's brand? Sometimes that's a tricky one, but we do a lot of festivals now, too, because, you know, Charlie Walker, he's still my guy. And any C3 Presents thing, they're like family, too. And there are a lot more festivals than just C3, but we have our niche to even create the logos for some festivals if they don't have their branding yet. And that's fun for us because it's something different and it's something for my graphic artist team. And again, when time allows, they give us the name. We do a logo. Then when they need a sizzle piece for it, we animate that logo and just come up with some cool vibes. And I always call some things a lava lamp on crack. Lava light on crack. We don't want to just use another crowd shot. You know, that's been done before. So just to do something that is trippy, but still gets that vibe across. We like challenges like that. That's very cool. When you're doing a festival that has a brand and you want to stay within the brand, but not do the same thing that they've done every year and try to keep it fresh. That's got to be a challenge that you guys take on all year long, thinking about what are we going to do for the new Palooza? And what are we going to do to make Brazil stand out differently from Chicago? Right. That's got to be a constant challenge of finding new things and to keep it fresh and exciting and cool because that's the key of all those things is they're cool in their genre. Right. It's a lot of responsibility. And we take it on. And again, it's still good to feel challenged. And, you know, we're not an accountant. We don't just go to work every day and look at a piece of paper and add, subtract and whatever. Again, when this type of industry is in your blood, if you love music, you love people, you know, it's a lot more than that. Obviously, but at the core of it, I think that's why I still just have the joy of what I do because the relationships that I've built, different personalities, you know, and it's not like every day you have pleasant conversations. Sometimes you have confront different people with different things. But at the end of the day, it's like, I respect you. You respect me. We'll work this out. And again, I think sometimes when you're under pressure and tensions are high, you know, that's not always a great situation, but you just have to deal with it. And at the end of the day, my team stays long and hard to get it done. And that's what it's all about. Let's do the 101 part of the podcast. Okay. When a manager is creating everything in-house and maybe faking it on their Mac or just trying to do it themselves, when does a band get to a level where they can start dabbling with being able to bring in somebody that does it on a real level like Tour Design? What's the entry? What's the gateway drug that starts? Is it digital? What's the first thing you recommend when a band just doesn't have the budget? They're just trying to jump into the next level of professionalism. You know, a lot of times just an online piece that they can put on their web page and just for social media outreach for them to do and, and get their vibe going on whatever platform they want to put it on. And then in whatever size rooms, then they start playing. In Indianapolis, there's a room called the Vogue, you know, or the Lawn White River, but that's more of a capacity. But it's an outside venue for some of the smaller acts. And we just start, again, online is what we start with for a band who doesn't really have a budget to do anything and do a little key art piece so then they can post it. And you guys like welcome that right? Because you want to see them build into the next levels where they're doing the full package. Get in early, depending on the agent or manager who our contact is. We feel like there's some, some loyalty there. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Because sometimes the band, if you do something with them for 10 years, and that's how you start out with them, they'll fire their agent and manager who you've been with and go with someone who prefers another vendor. And that's always hard. Can't help that. Uh, it stings, but got to move on because that's just a part of it. What's the thing when you're watching TV and you see a spot or you're flipping through the websites and see somebody doing a, an ad or something that you see that just stands out to you that's your pet peeve? Like they do that wrong. They didn't have a pro do 
that. Public doesn't isn't going to like that. That's just not the right way. What's the thing that you see that just stands out? It's like, no, the amateurs get that wrong every time. Well, you know, if something's on a broadcast TV spot, it's probably done by one of the companies who do what I do. So probably online, like a Facebook or an Instagram or something, probably more makeshift. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes raw is good. I mean, I really don't judge that because I feel like to each their own. It might not be my cup of tea or my taste, but if the band, you know, or the agent or manager, someone had to approve it just because maybe Tour Design didn't produce it. Well, whether you produced it or Bill Young or anybody else did it, some things are good and some things are bad. Right. I'm sure you guys have done things where you've gone back and looked at it later and you're like, we could have done that better. Well, tis true. But a lot of times I feel someone's pain because again, full disclosure, sometimes we don't even get good footage for some artists. And by the time they need to do the advertising, we do have to come up with something kind of unique because if there's no approved footage, but they need something, you know, quickly, we just try and, again, really get creative. And if we have the key art, use layered files to animate and get it out there. And that can still be exciting because, again, that's different. And yet somehow the dead drummer still slips into those things. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> you, can't, you can't blame Tour Design for it. The manager <laughs> didn't get you the updated shit. Well, that's when we animate a logo in, in that place. It's been we'll a long time in since I've gotten, I've gotten any assets for the dead drummer, but... Mm. It, it happens. <laughs> Any advice for people coming up in the industry and what they can do to like stand out? Oh, I think a lot of people think that getting their foot in the door is somewhat of an easy thing. And it's a lot of hard work, long hours, long days. And there are times, SMH, <laughs> shaking my head. SMH. SMH, man. But I've been doing this 34 years now, which is insane. But what keeps me going, again, is just, you know, you can say you love music, but I've built a career of loving music and loving what I do to have my own home, to take care of my mom. It's an honor for me to do that. And it just, when I look back on things and, you know, I haven't always run the company, obviously. I think that's been a, a 10 year of me being CEO president. I just always just worked hard and was that girl that everyone knew because I was the one who called and was like the personality of the company, if you will. You're a brand. Yeah. But I think that's what's gotten me through a lot of times because a lot of people that have worked with me and know that that's my vibe and that's how I am. I have their back and they've had mine and it's, it's come in handy during some of the more stressful times. What's most impressive about your career, and we've known each other a long time, is how close you are with your competitors. Most people don't get along with their competitors at all, but you and John Schultz, you guys are in the same place. At some point, you guys are going to be hanging out. And well, he, he started out at Tour Design, so that that's the bond there. You know, some of the corporate shakeups that happened, some things happened that weren't really under my domain, but it's a human being thing. And, you know, they work hard. He works hard. Yeah, we like Schultz. Yeah. Fergie, thank you so much for taking time and talking to me on Promoter 101. Thank you, Steiny. Fergie is amazing. She brings us the likes of people like Bill Kittle, who I don't think the industry would know existed if there wasn't Fergie. Without Fergie, there could be no Kittle. That alone makes her an icon, but she's just an amazing, amazing person. We love Fergie. So awesome to have her on Promoter 101. John Valentino with AEG Presents, and here we are on Promoter 101. Tweet. Tweets of the Week. It's time for the Stani Wisdom Hour, a.k.a. Tweets of the Week. Let's start here. Working in an industry that is built around music, booze, drugs, sex appeal, and money. Wait, I, f I forgot what my point was. Precisely. We didn't sell out the 650-cap room last year. But we want to bring a Broadway-style theater show in at twice the size and it's sell-out money deal. What do you think? Of course. I think we should confirm that show tomorrow. Said every agent ever. 
If everyone did business the way Randy Vogel does. The industry would just be a much nicer place, wouldn't it, Luke? It would indeed. And that'll do it for our Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Keep up with Dan. He's at the Jew on Twitter. I'm at the Jew. Call your mother. Call your mother. Hi, it's John Meglin from Concerts West, and you're on Promoter 101. Up next, a war story from the City Winery Director of Programming, Shlomo Lippitz. Shlomo from City Winery, what do you got for us? Well, we were lucky enough to have Prince twice, once in Chicago as a kind of same day type of thing, and then five nights where he may or may not show up, but nevertheless, New Power Generation was playing, and we had double shows on Wednesday, double shows on Friday, and then on Sunday, the VMAs. So my story is, the first two nights of Prince in New York, Prince does not show up. The band plays full night. Obviously, everyone was there was disappointed. The tickets weren't really that high because it wasn't really Prince. We put a purple thing and a print sign, but there was no guarantee he'll show up. He didn't show up the first and second night. The third night, we have this podcast guy, this New York sport personality, I'm not going to mention his name, where he asks Michael to please come downstairs because he's part of the Prince fan club and he wants to interview Michael. And I'm in the room and the first question that the guy asked Michael, so Michael, how does it feel, you know, been in the music business for 25 years and you've never had Prince? And Michael's response was, man, I've been trying to get that motherfucker for a long time. Something changed in the room. It was some weird energy. I can't really explain it. Not even two minutes pass and his 21-year-old manager, Prince's manager, comes in the room and asks to talk with me. And she tells me, Shlomo, I don't know what your boss just did, but Prince is in his room. He's listening to the podcast. It's a live feed. And your boss just called him motherfucker on air. And he didn't take that in the loving motherfucker, motherfucker kind of way. No, and as you know, we all know, you know, he's born again or whatever. He can't cuss. And it's notorious for band members to get fined and all that stuff. And she says, well, Prince is not planning to come now anymore. He's canceling the rest of the shows. I'm like just rolling my eyes. I'm like, fuck, are you fucking kidding me? After all what this, a motherfucker. this whole week leading up, it was like the worst week of my life. I've been kept up again and again. And I just asked her, you know, flat out, like, is there anything that we could do that will change his mind? And he shows up and she's like, let me talk with him. And she goes out for 10 minutes. She comes back and she's like, well, if Michael writes on a piece of paper a hundred times, your name is Prince, not motherfucker. Your name is Prince, not motherfucker. He'll consider. And I have to go back into the room to Michael and explain to him, hey, Michael, we're going to have you play the Bart Simpson and write on the piece of paper a hundred times, your name is Prince, not motherfucker. And Michael actually, now a couple of drinks down, he, he was a good sport. You know what? I'll do it. So I actually have even have a photo, a video of him kind of writing it down. Ten minutes go by, handed back to the manager, and she disappears for a half hour, then comes back and just tells me, Prince forgives you. He goes on like one o'clock in the morning and play until close to seven in the morning, five or six hours of epic show. So that's it. Thank you. Shlomo has a feature interview coming up in just a couple weeks. So call you Deli Baker. Hey! This is John Giddings, and I'm on Promoter 101. And last but not least, our next and final interview for this episode 119 of Promoter 101 is the general manager of the UC Theater Berkeley, Mr. Matt Smitty-Smith. We're hanging in Aspen, and one of my favorite people, Matt Smith, Smitty. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, dude. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Some of these require lots of work. Others require lots and lots of understanding of technology or where the industry is going in a different field. This, this is a labor of love. I've been looking forward to this, man. Welcome to the fucking show. Thank you. So let's talk about what you guys have going on in Berkeley, and then we'll get back to how you got 
where you're at. Absolutely. So about 2014, 13, I was recruited by a man named David Mayeri, who was a chief operating officer of Bill Graham Presents, to come on board with a project to renovate the historic UC Theater into a concert venue. And it's in Berkeley. It's in Berkeley, California, like right in the heart of Berkeley, Shattuck University Ave, a couple blocks off campus. So I was fortunate enough to come onto that project pre-construction and was able to manage the project through construction with David, build up the entire business and turn it into one of the last standing independent venues of any note of size in the in the Bay Area. So we're now the UC Theater, Berkeley, California, doing about 100 shows a year, independently promoted, 1,500 cap nightclub. We put about $6 million into the renovation, state-of-the-art sound and lights, as well as an enormous amount of acoustical treatment. So we've got one of the best sounding rooms on the West Coast, in my biased opinion, but <laughs> we've had several other people say that as well. The room's got a cool vibe. You guys are booking some really progressive, cool stuff. You're taking some chances. And there's a youthful vibe because there's an amazing campus right there. Yeah, that's correct. And it's not just the campus that we do, though. A lot of people look at the Bay Area as San Francisco as being the market. However, there's five times more people people on the other side of the bridge. And so what you've seen is an entire vertical of venues all the way from the New Parish through us, through the Fox Theater, through the Greek Theater, through the Oracle Arena, really establishing itself as its own market. So we do have a very youthful vibe for a lot of shows. We also have a very millennial, a little bit older, 20s and 30s vibe. And then, you know, when we get up into the hills and we book something more legacy, we do seated shows as well. It's pretty excellent to take advantage of the diversity of the East Bay. Can you play both in San Francisco proper and play the East Bay? I absolutely consider them two separate markets. We've been fortunate enough to be able to do shows back to back with the Fillmore, which would traditionally be worth what people would say, 1,400 tickets in the market and sell out both sides of it. Since I've been promoting in Oakland for the past 15 years, I've always been trying to distinguish them as two markets. And for locals, that bridge is a thousand miles long. It may look on a map like it's seven miles, but as far as I'm concerned, absolutely, you can play both. That is an amazingly big bridge. It's the architecture <laughs> within itself yeah. is amazing that it even exists, right? It's, it's a stunning. wonder. It's a stunning, stunning piece of it. It really is. And as you're on it, it really seems like you're on it forever. And there is a mental block and going over the bridge literally is a mind click. Are you committing to going over the bridge? Absolutely. Or even just going through the tunnel. I mean, the train stops shortly after midnight, so you can't really take public transportation back and forth. The other thing about it is Oakland, Berkeley have gone through massive economic developments over the past 10 years. So before there wasn't really much to do over there. Now you have world-class restaurants, world-class nightclubs, world-class museums, all these things coming up as well as over 20,000 housing units. So what you've had is where there was kind of a dearth of nightlife and things to do in the East Bay. That's there now where people used to have to go to San Francisco. You don't have to cross the bridge anymore. I have seen a drastic turn in people being like, I never go to San Francisco anymore, ever. And I used to go constantly. Now you've been rewarded with some pretty killer underplays. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you want to name drop a little? Uh, well, Green Day would be the first one. The entire organization has been extremely supportive of us from the very beginning, which is great. We've had Ani DeFranco, NoFX, Run the Jewels, to name a few. So some pretty cool things that could have sold much more tickets, but they wanted to play the cool room and they wanted to support the venue. Absolutely. And one edge of it that we have, besides just being independent, we're also a nonprofit. We have an entire education program called the Concert Careers Pathways Program, where we take underserved and at-risk youth ages 17 and 25 and teach them the technical, creative, and business aspects of concert promotion. And these are kids that are coming up through various programs through the very area, like the Berkeley Y Teen Center, Youth Uprising, et cetera. And they're moving into the phase of independent living. So we run them through a 40-week program which is very extensive. And when 
people find out about that, they realize that we're doing something much bigger than just padding our pockets. And we do run the venue as a regular market rate venue. You wouldn't even notice unless you dug in and saw all of a sudden these kids are working within the subtext of what we're doing. And so that also brings a lot of, pulls on a lot of heartstrings, so to speak. So you're educating, you're bringing music, you're enhancing the neighborhood all at the same time. Where's the downside? I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, since the beginning of coming onto this project, the only resistance that we got from anywhere was from other promoters. <laughs> and the community has embraced us enormously. And we feel like we really brought a service. We also filled a hole in the vertical in the market as far as we're the only venue of our size and type in the East Bay. We're also providing probably the most diverse range of cultural entertainment for any venue that's happening. We do symphonies, we do spoken word stuff occasionally. We do adventure film series, although primarily 90% of what we do is live music. We've done the advertisement for the venue, which is a cool thing. <laughs> Thanks. Let's talk about you. Absolutely. How you doing? I'm doing great. I just spent five hours skiing in Aspen. It's not the worst thing in the world. This conference really has made it so we've gotten to know each other the last five years or so. We've become friends, but it's one of those things where you have a special vibe about you. You're really excited about music. Absolutely. It's part of your lifestyle. It's part of your being. In the last year, we got to enjoy a Metallica show together. In, <laughs> Thank in you, Seattle. Mark Ryder. Thank you. We went with a friend of mine, Chris Porter, who's been on Chris podcast. Porter, who is now booking the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco, which is just stunning to watch him glow driving around that park in a golf cart right now. He loves it. <laughs> <laughs> Happy for Chris. But there's something that you get when you get to go to a show of that magnitude and hang out and truly like see someone enjoy a show and particularly with a band like that where there's a connection and the high fives when you get the fucking <laughs> oh my god they're playing one yeah <laughs> you know those feelings where it's just like this is so cool i can't believe we're in the fucking pit those awesome feelings and the industry allows us some extra special cool hookups sometimes Absolutely. like that maybe not everybody's gonna get but like fuck it we're all in the industry let's take advantage of that shit and yeah thank you mark Ryder. <laughs> metallic in the stadium i gotta say has got to be the most sensory overload I may have ever had. <laughs> Absolutely. The band running around you because the pit literally is in the middle of the catwalk that circles all the way around, the video wall behind you, the explosions and the screams while you're like a foot from James Hatfield singing Sad But True. It's just, exactly. oh my God. <laughs> fucking overwhelming. It was an amazing time for sure. <laughs> so we got to share that, recapping it while we were trying to get out of the fucking parking lot because stadium shows were... <laughs> Would be a bear to get out of. Absolutely. I think my favorite part of that entire show is I may have been the only person not wearing a black t-shirt. <laughs> you were. Actually, you were getting texts. People being like, Steiny, I can see you in the pit with your red shirt. One dot of red in the middle of the crowd. It was pretty hilarious. I wanted the band to know I was there, man. <laughs> so music is one of those things that can bring people together. And, you know, we were friends before that, but I think after that night, our relationship has become much tighter because we got to share that experience. Absolutely. A night I'll never forget. So music is a part of you, right? Absolutely. What brought you to it? I have been drawn to music for as long as I can remember. I played music professionally for a very long time. What's your instrument of choice? I'm a percussionist. So I studied percussion. I lived in Ghana for eight months, studied all over the Caribbean. Initially, one of the keys to me moving out to the Bay Area is how many amazing percussionists are there, world-class percussionists, Michael Spiro, John Santos, Jesus Diaz. So you say percussionist like you weren't playing a trap kit. No, I do play trap kit. I played 
general percussion, I would say. Everything but piano. Okay, but you can do the timpani. <laughs> I can peck out a few notes here and there, yeah. <laughs> but percussionist, you're either being very snobby about it or you have a real education in it. A little bit of both. I don't have what many people would consider a formal education in percussion. I studied with various maestros around the world. I'm still currently studying for the past 14 years with uh, Sika Lipzepko, who's in Berkeley, California, who's a world-renowned folklorist, West African percussionist. So I really got into it from the player side of things, but had the pragmatic mindset to go to school for business as opposed to going to music school. I'm a business hippie, man. Yeah, well, you know, I wanted to, if I was going to borrow money to go to college, which I had to pay for my own school, I was going to go for something I could use. But I've always been a fan. Still to this day, have shows where I go. And when you have someone on stage who's executing a high level of just believability and emotional core and the crowd and everything's in it, I still get the chills. I still love going to shows. I still love that feeling when the lights come down and everybody just kind of freaks out. And one of the things that drives me in the industry to do what I do as far as now moving into promoting shows, a while ago, I made the decision to kind of do something a little bit more sustainable financially. And I also got tired of being on the road was that in this crazy world that we're living in and everybody's all wrapped up in so many different things between politics and their personal relationships and their finances and all the problems we have, when people go to a really good show, it's a transcendental experience for several hours. And I look at it, when I look out over the UC theater and I see the whole room just banging, band is clicking, the room is there, all eyes are on it. We have successfully delivered happiness. I like that. And to me, that's very important. It's something I feel is important for us to have as a common sense of humanity to like bring that to people. Fuck yeah, man. Let's talk about this. And this is a little informal because it's you and me, you know, it's like I didn't take notes because I, I didn't, <laughs> I wanted to be free form with yeah, you and me. Fair enough. There are a lot of musicians that wanted to be musicians, and I, I get the feeling you'd rather make your living on stage than behind stage. No, actually, when I was done performing for a living, I realized I love playing drums. It's a, it's a very much so a passion for me, but the process of making a living and doing it had sucked out some of that passion for me. When I made the transition, I still get that juice that I used to get on stage when I book a show that just cracks. I still get that feeling. And it's very strange. I never thought about it. But, you know, that first moment when the kick drum hits those subs and everything goes there, it still affects me in that way. And so I didn't get pulled out of live music like performance. I stepped out of it on purpose. I still get a lot of pleasure by practicing and performing in a much more casual setting. It brings me back to why I loved it in the first place when I had felt that that had actually been sucked out of me in so many ways. Now I love it. I'm not sitting there learning a set and learning somebody else's songs or, you know, studying for a recording session or something like that. I can learn what I want to. I wake up in the morning and I drop the needle on some vinyl and I hear somebody's chop and I still have a kick, snare and hi-hat set up in my apartment. And I have a set of drums like there with a the music stand and I can now just hear something. I reckon like, that's a great chop. Pull my coffee out, spend 15 minutes, rip through it, learn it. It's in my encyclopedia. And then next thing you know, I'm off to the UC theater to book shows. So you don't play anymore publicly? You don't perform? Not really. No, it's been a while. That's not a closed chapter, right? Because you said when you made the change, did you make the change like I'm financially going to focus on making a living in music and not performing? But you haven't, you, you've not given up the idea of ever not performing again, no, right? No, like, absolutely. You I, would gig I, in a band, right? I have no desire to be in a band with any sort of ambition. <laughs> Got it. But playing is a, still a labor of love. Absolutely. I mean, I've been... You just don't want to be on the road gigging, trying to grind out a living. Right. I mean, I've been playing for 25 years. It's something I do. It's something I, I would consider myself to be talented at and it'll happen again so over the year you know the podcast has been around for two plus years now and something i've noticed after interviewing hundreds of industry folks is a lot of us 
got our first taste of the industry with an instrument in our hand. A lot of us wanted to make our living on stage and at some point realized that it's so hard. Many of the people that we deal with in the industry make a better living than most of the musicians that are living the dream because there are very few people that get to be Sting. The 1% of the 1% is just <laughs> ridiculous. And you can make money as the drummer for a pretty good band, but you have to be gigging a lot and you have to stay current and you have to keep the band together and you have to have a lot of luck. A lot of luck. Because selling out 500 seaters ain't going to do it. Selling out 1,000 cap ain't going to do it either. If you're headlining them, you're getting a $25 ticket and you're doing 200 shows a year, you can grind out a living. You can grind out a living. But yeah, it's tough. The bus, the agent, the road crew, gas, it just kills you. Even if you can keep it to a van, which at some point, if you're doing that many shows, you can't. Well, it's also very isolating. I feel as though if you're touring that much, your whole world is the people you're touring with. This is something I noticed that affected me. It wasn't necessarily a reason is every time I'd go out on the road, especially as I got in my late 20s and early 30s, you'd go out and you'd be out, you know, a couple months here and there, you'd be back for a couple weeks and go and you're back. So you're not really connecting with your people and you go out and your friends and people that you really enjoy being around are going through these major life changes that you do at that age. They're buying a home or getting married or having kids and you start to miss those moments with those people. And so it's very easy, I think, to lose your sense of grounding when you're in that state. And I think that sometimes is a lot of reason why so many touring musicians have so many problems with depression and you know various narcotics and, and whatnot because they don't have a grounding anymore there. So that's also a very difficult part about it. And you have to commit yourself to saying, okay, I'm going to be the man in the suitcase and all of where I'm from can just exist without me. And that's a big sacrifice. And it's a gamble too, because if you don't crest over that, next thing you know, you're at home and everybody around you has just moved on. Sounds like a great Allison Chain song. <laughs> the man that didn't in mean the sound, suitcase. It sounded a little bit dark, but it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's a different world, right? Living on the side of the industry where you're presenting the show, you're presenting the offer, you're turning the theater into a community space that's a gathering space. It's a different side of the world. And performing... You have that ability to touch the audience in such a direct way. But from where you're at, it's a little less direct and a little bit more community building. So you're more the platform for others. When you hand over the microphone and you step off stage and let someone else do that, mentally, that's a huge decision. Was that hard? I was ready for it. I went back and forth on it for maybe a year. I would go through those nights of extreme elation for the shows that just popped and then the shows that weren't and you're in the middle of the nowhere. I definitely went through a period where I felt like I had lost my identity for a little while because everybody who had known me for the past 15 years knew me as someone, you know, from the time I was 17 that played drums and did that for a living and, and that was it. So there was a period where I had to think about finding myself, but I realized that once I started going full bore on promoting shows, and I was also promoting shows while I was touring, I was using the Rolodex I was developing there to book smaller clubs and that sort of thing about the area. I realized, A, that I was really happy doing this. Like this was- You're a, an entrepreneur in spirit. I'm an entrepreneur in spirit. And moving on to booking shows and being involved with, with nightclubs and, and theaters was actually something that made me very happy right from the get-go. It wasn't like a, a compromise, but there was absolutely a period where I had to reevaluate myself. I had to reevaluate my lifestyle. And yeah, that first 
stretch of being home for six contiguous months in the last eight years was an adjustment. <laughs> Before I let you go, you're someone that's newer to the industry as far as the business side. You're not 25 years in. I mean, you're not two years in though. You've, you've right. got some experience. Yeah, but I would say about 10 years at this point. Right. Yeah. So you're at this very intermediate point of your career where you're in the door, you're through the borders to entry, you've had some success and you're established and you're credible people listen to you and they do business with you. Right. But you've got far greater pastures that you're trying to reach and you're not done yet by any means. From where you're at to now, do you have advice for the guys that are entering the business on how to get through those borders to entry? Yeah, I mean, for people who are just coming in, a lot of my career has had a lot of successes because I showed up and I was personable and I would ask people to meet with them or just being outgoing in those situations, but constantly going to shows, constantly go to places where people in the industry hang out and be someone that they'll, they would like is very, very important. Find partners, find people that you trust that you can boost yourself into the industry with people who want to do things with you. Like don't try to plow through this alone. I don't feel like anybody in this industry has done this on an island by themselves. <laughs> so those would be the two things. No Smitty is an island? <laughs> I, actually, I'm going to put it a little bit more succinctly. Show up on time. Always pay people what you're going to tell them you're going to pay them. And don't be a dick. Always good advice. <laughs> don't be a dick. Smitty, thank you so much for taking time and talking to us on Promoter 101. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Smitty is just super kissable. <laughs> but seriously, he is an amazing dude doing great things in the Bay Area. And look, this is kind of historic because this will be the last time we'll have multiple interviews on an episode. So Smitty gets the honors of being the last Promoter 101 interview to be the second on an episode. Kind of high honors, I would think. Golf clap for that, I think. Golf clap. Hi, this is John Schur from Metropolitan Entertainment Consultants, Promoter 101. Dan, there is no better way to just name drop a fuck ton of names than just saying birthdays for the week of January 25th to the 31st, 2019. Who we got? That joke never gets old, Luke. It never gets old. It's the best joke. Never get old, said your mother. Ooh. Ooh. Friday, January 25th. This date's specially held for Buckethead's agent, Mr. Michael Weinstein. Happy birthday, Michael. Just for you. On Saturday, the 26th, wishing a happy birthday to Maria Bruner and the man himself, or so he says, if you ask him, Mr. Vince Bannon. Oh, dude. Vince is the man. <laughs> Vince is the man. We love him to death. I like giving him a hard time because he would certainly give it right back to us. It's one of those guys that could kind of buy and sell half the industry if he wanted to because he's got that kind of chutzpah in juice. A true Canadian. You know, Dan, I got a funny story about Vince Bannon if we're tangenting for a second here. Let's tangent, motherfucker. Tangent. Let's tangent for a second. During a, an Aspen Live Jim Louie classic exercise this year, I happened to break out on one of our team events where we made, I forget what presentation or what we were presenting. It was something for a cannabis cup mock marketing plan. You made a deck. I made a deck. And after being pretty proud of myself for whipping up a deck with charts and tables and the very limited time that we had to present this, Vince said to me, try taking a fucking deck and an apple. And I just held my head pretty low <laughs> underneath that, which was... <laughs> Thus ends the tangent. Who do we got for a birthday? Well, I'm just trying to keep the soap PC and clean it. You just keep Driving it right up the center, don't you? Yeah, I, you know, every time. Well, hey, fuck me. Anyway, <laughs> Sunday, January 27th, Sunday, 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 AC Entertainment's Brian Benson. Happy birthday, motherfucker. 
On the 28th, wishing a happy birthday, Stephen Brush. Tuesday, the 29th, Danny Glazer, Ray Solly, and Chris Ward, who is hosting us next week in Philadelphia. Looking forward to that. On Wednesday, the 30th, wishing a happy birthday to music mogul himself, Mr. Joe Escalante, Scott Skokel, Claire Tully, and Randy Olson. Thursday, the 31st of January, and the last day of our month this year. We're closing out one month already, 2019, 112th in the books. Holy shit. Talking about about Jesse Stoll, Andrew Buck, Brian Dreskin, Brian Jonas, and Eric Bresler. Holy shit, that is a big fucking day on Thursday. Whopping two big Brian's, one Andrew, a Jesse and an Eric. Happy birthday to all of you sons of bitches. Happy birthday indeed from the gang of Promoter 101. We're going to get gang jackets. We're going to be a very well-financed street gang. Should we learn to sing and dance? <laughs> Are you going to be the Jets or the Sharks? Exactly. <laughs> going to have to learn to sing and dance, Dan. Somebody's got to entertain the people, Luke. Got to entertain the people. John Pleader, Vice President of ICM Partners. This is Promoter 101. The quote of the week comes to us from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I'm laughing already. It's great. You know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. How about that one, Luke? I like that, Dan. That's a good quote of the week. That's a good way to wrap this up. Episode 119 of Promoter 101 in the books. Got a big thanks out to all of our guests who sat down with us in this podcast from Tour Design, Deborah Fergie Ferguson, from the UC Theater in Berkeley, California, Mr. Matt Smitty Smith, Shlomo Lippitz from New York and the City Winery. And thank you, of course, to everybody tuning into this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back this time on Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific with our next episode. That's right, Dan. First of many bite sized things to come and that'll be an episode with UTA's Jeremy Holgerson talking about g Easy to the Pogues and a war story with Aaron Falls it's gonna be awesome not really sure what just happened with Dan well, we hope he's okay and for all of you out there listening until next time we're wishing you sold out shows for the weeks to come cheers call your mother she's worried about you she's not gonna eat until you call her call her call your mother call your mother alright promoter 101 in the books goodbye y'all go home stop listening stop already hi it's Kira Finkenberg I'm the marketing and ticketing guru for Andy Hewitt and Bill Silver Presents I'm on promoter 101 